the teacher will be instructed to focus in on some particular generative themes that actually are the things that are causing reactions in the students and to prime the students to, to have discussions about systemic racism or their own complicity in racism. Have you ever been racist? Can you imagine what it feels like? Now you've created a massive emotional dynamic with caring little six and seven year olds or whatever the grade level is to where you're going to use their emotions to manipulate them. You're gonna get their, you're gonna put a hook into their heart to lead them away from their head. Hey, Joyful Warriors. So excited for this episode today. It's the first time that I've ever had uh, Mr. Lady Killer, uh, Dr. James Lindsay, on the Moms for Liberty podcast, the Joyful Warrior podcast. So thank you, Lady Killer James, for joining us today. Yeah, well, I'm happy to be here. I still got my name tag somewhere on my bookshelf over here for the Lady Killer name tag. I can see it, the National Summit. I figured that's a piece of history, so I should keep it. First National Summit, Moms for Liberty. Yeah, it was awesome. And I thank you so much for speaking on the main stage there and talking to our moms a little bit, giving them some insight into why America's public schools are where they are today. So for those of you that don't know James Lindsay, James Lindsay um, is uh, a, tr originally a math professor, right, James? <laughs> you you taught math. Yeah. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. And how would you describe yourself now? I mean, your role right now today in America is truth teller? Yeah, something like that. I mean, I try to keep making it so that my bio says professional troublemaker, but people keep editing it out and putting political commentator, which is really boring and stupid, which is not actually what I do most of the time. I, I actually, I, I started by studying woke and started working my way backwards to now I think I've gone back to its history like 3,000 years. Um, but for the most part, I've studied Marx's influence on our society as it's kind of manifested in the past 20 or 30 years in particular. Um, and it explains a lot of things like why our education system is so messed up, why our entertainment systems are so messed up, why the media is lying to us constantly. It, it kind of explains a lot. Um, so I try to deliver that to, you know, normal people a little bit on a, you know, you're gonna have to reach for the cookies a little bit. They're on a higher shelf. Uh, but I try to help under, normal people understand what's going on. So I've learned a tremendous uh, deal from you in listening to your podcast on New Discourses. So for those of you that you've never heard of James before, please go to newdiscourses.com and you can see his podcast. You can go on Spotify, on Apple. Um, James has done, gosh, I don't even know how many podcasts you've done at this point, James. Um, well, so many. I mean, you have several that come out every week. Yeah, the main podcast, which is the New Discourses podcast, is at like 101 or 102 episodes now. So we just crossed the century mark. Um, let's see. There's a short form sort of usually aspirationally short form version called New Discourses Bullets, which I think we're getting close to 30 of those. So that's like 130. Then I have a uh, separate podcast that I do that's called James Lindsay Only Subs because it I got invited to be on OnlyFans as an influencer. And I was like, uh... What am I supposed to do? Like read philosophy in my underwear? And they're like, you could do that. And I was like, <laughs> how about I just make this podcast? It's audio only for subscribers only where I kind of do, you know, more experimental or more personal kind of messaging or whatever. And I think there's like 130 something of those. It's just insane how many of those I've made. But that's kind of bad because I was intending to try to do three to four a week. And it's now been almost two years. And so I did not keep up with my intentions. 
Well, I think you've covered a lot of ground and I've learned a lot from you, but I'll be honest with you. One of the things that I've learned um, from you the most is the way that you have been willing to connect with um, everyday Americans. And when you came to the summit, the Joyful Warrior Summit in Tampa, I watched you as you interacted with all of the moms and dads that were there and spent time with them and answered questions and listened to the other speakers and drew connections and helped them to draw connections between all of the things that they were hearing about and, and learning. And I just want to take this opportunity to thank you um, formally on the podcast for taking so much time and intention and care in making sure that moms and dads understand what's really happening because there's a lot of gaslighting going on in America's public schools and in America right now when it comes to parents saying, you know, hey, wait, we're a little concerned about what we're seeing happen. And everyone's saying, oh, no, you're the one with the problem. We're just doing what's best for your kids. You just don't understand. <laughs> so um, tell us, James, do we understand that there's a problem or um, are, are, are we uh, really wrong here as parents to be concerned about what's happening? No, you're correct. There's a big problem and your senses, while you may not have the vocabulary to describe what's happening yet and you may not be able to quite put your finger on it, your intuition and in fact, just your senses, your eyes and your ears are not lying to you. There is a big problem. Uh, it is part and parcel of the program that they run, the leftists or Marxists tend to run to do this kind of gaslighting to tell you that, that A, you don't understand it, or B, you're a bad person, or C, that you're crazy, that you're perceiving things that aren't actually happening, that you're a conspiracy theorist, that you're often, you know, you're creating boogeymen to, to fight after. These are the things that they say because they have to knock you off of three different kinds of authority where people might take you seriously or you you know, can stand and be sure in what you're saying without doubting yourself. And those are intellectual authority, moral authority, and psychological authority. So they constantly try to attack you. They try to make you out to be bad people. We know that the moms got labeled domestic terrorists. We know that, right. you know, uh, we were talking before we started about all the political cartoons made about the moms of Moms for Liberty, uh, just trying to characterize them as, as horrible people. They try to tell you, you don't understand the issue. You don't understand real education. You know, we're the experts, your parents, you don't have teaching degrees. You don't have teacher credentials. You uh, don't know how pedagogy works. You don't know how racism works. You don't know how school works. You don't know how anything works. So you're not intellectual enough. You're a bad person. Or in fact, you're saying these things are happening, but there's no evidence. No evidence for, you know, grooming children is bad. What's your source? They're trying to knock you off of, of your, not like a pedestal, but your ability to stand on your own two feet and understand the world around you. And to be taken seriously when you speak, it's really funny because if we, whether we turn to Paulo Ferreri, which I know we'll talk about, he, it's the, the iron law of woke projection is always true, whether it's him or whether it's these other people, they're always talking about people being marginalized and silenced. Ferreri called the marginalized people or the oppressed in a culture of silence. And the, the iron law of woke projection never, ever misses. That's what they're doing. They're trying to put you in a culture or a cone of silence where nobody will listen to you. Nobody will take you seriously. Um, and so, no, your, your moms and dads and grandparents and everybody out there are perceiving the problems. They may lack the language to talk about them. So you asked me what my job is. My job is to help people see that more clearly and to be able to articulate what they're seeing in language that cuts through the BS and actually equips them to use the language from the so-called scholars and activists 
so that it kind of demystifies it and and, and puts it in, in a position where we can speak with that clarity and authority and make positive uh, changes to protect our kids. So I uh, thank you for that. I, I, and and you know, I started this journey as a mom and a school board member. I served on school board for four years. Two years into my school board term, um, there was a, a horrific shooting in uh, Parkland, Florida at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And 17 people died, 14 children and three adults. And after that, uh, there was a huge push in my own school district to completely rewrite the strategic plan and to... Um, engage in a level of social emotional learning that we had not uh, been a part of before. And I watched as people from all across the country, all of these third party consultants, right? These grifters, as I like to call them, swooped in and just had droves of information and programs. This is the solution. This is the solution. Oh, your kids aren't doing well in school. Well, you know, they don't feel safe and valued. Uh, you're not teaching them in a culturally relevant fashion. Um, if you just do this, uh, then kids will learn. And and yet we've seen across the country that all of these things have been put into schools and kids aren't learning any better. Achievement is not increasing. And so I want to dive in. Um, you know, we're a parental rights organization. So primarily parents have that fundamental right to direct the upbringing of their children. Anybody who tells you that they're an expert who knows better for your child is an idiot, and you need to tell them that. You need to tell them to back off. And I know you help parents to build up that armor to be able to do that. But we also work in education. And um, I'm a conservative. I said the other day, I'm a conservative, but I also consider myself to be a revolutionary. I think that we need to be a revolutionary. We need to be pushing forward. Um, and conservatives for a long time really seeded the ground in public education. They focused primarily on school choice and have not focused on ed reform. So sorry about that, my dogs, um, adding to the podcast. Um, so when American parents are looking at our schools and they're saying, our kids aren't learning how to read in school. They can't do math in school. We have NAEP scores that just came out, right? Worse than 2019. But let's remember in 2019, the kids weren't doing well in school, right? How do we get to this moment for someone who's never met you before? Let's talk a little bit about this man named Paolo Ferreri. And you have said before, our children go to Paolo Ferreri, school, Paolo Ferreri schools, but Paolo Ferreri is dead right? Yeah. He hasn't been alive for quite some time. So how are our kids going to Palo Ferrari schools? Well, let me start with these consultants, because I want to just point out that, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you get the Oreo and you get the double stuff Oreo. They're like double stuffed frauds. Um, it's like two layers of fraud in between the sandwich cookies, because what you've got going on is that they don't diagnose the problems correctly. And then the solutions that they offer are the exact wrong thing to do. So, you know, with with things like school shootings, we know that there are, we have very good reasons, at least to believe, I think we know that the, the part of the cause of this is restorative justice programming. We know that it's the inclusive classroom where you're bringing troubled kids back in and trying to keep them integrated in the main classroom. And so in the case of, of the shooting in Parkland, we know that there were hundreds of kids who said, we saw something, we said something, they did nothing. And that was because of restorative justice, justice and inclusive classroom policies. So what do they do? They come back and they say, oh, what we'll do is we'll indoctrinate your kids with equity and inclusion-based 
uh, social emotional engineering, and then that's going to you know solve the problem. And not only did it not solve the problem in any regard whatsoever, but it also just starts taking away from class time by redirecting it into things that, that even if it were done honestly, the school probably doesn't have any station to be doing. But it's not being done honestly. It's equity, this inclusion, that sustainability, this you know you know agenda, whatever that, and so. They never diagnose the problems correctly, but if we were to be very kind to them and say that they do, they'd never prescribe the right medicine either. And that's because they fundamentally don't know what's going on. Um, and Paulo is Can you give that analogy? That. Yeah. Can you give that analogy again that you gave at the summit for, for those that didn't hear it about if you had a wound? I thought that analogy oh, yeah. that you gave about that was wonderful to help us understand this. Yeah. So they think in what's called systems, right? So they're always trying to figure out how the system is the thing that's the problem. And so if you have a problem, somehow the system is the failure. And kind of a hilarious example of this that actually happened this summer was, you know, there's MPOX and you're not allowed to ask what the M and, M and monkeypox stands for anymore because it's racist to ask what the M stands for in MPOX. But so you're never going to say M monkeypox again. <laughs> you're, you can't ask. But anyway, there was this huge thing about it, you know, and they were trying to push for a vaccination and all this. And then it turns out that one of like the Open Society Foundation New York office like top guys gets it. And he writes this this story telling about how he got it. And it's one of the most hilarious things I've ever written, read. It's 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 incredibly graphic about his suffering and how he read it. Oh my goodness. How he obtained the, the virus that we're not allowed to name. But at any rate, what did he do? What was the why did he write this humiliating article? It was because he said because the system in New York City failed him by failing to vaccinate him properly before he went to whatever kind of a party where monkeypox might spread and then contracted it. And it's it was funny, but they're always trying to blame the system. So the analogy I gave was that if it's like if you went to the doctor and let's say you were out, you know, doing normal human stuff and working outside in the garden or in the yard or on a fence or something and you cut yourself and, you know, it was maybe some rusty barbed wire. It got a little ugly looking, you know, and a couple of days go by. You're like, this isn't getting better. It's really red. It's really swollen. It's got some, you know, infection starting up. I have to go to the doctor. And so you go to the doctor and what a real doctor will do is look at the situation and it'll say, well, we're going to treat this. We're going to clean it up. We're going to put some antibiotics. We're going to put you on this and we're going to kill the source of the infection so that it can heal properly. And what a person who thinks in terms of systems would do would say if, the, if you had a doctor who's thinking systemically is, oh, wow, you're having a reaction. This looks like all this white stuff that's kind of coming up around the edges. That's an immune system reaction. This red, this swelling, this is a this is a systemic reaction that's rooted in your immune system. So the way that we're going to treat this is by putting you on immune suppressants to make sure that the uh, you know, that this reaction goes away because you're thinking about changing the system overall that's causing the symptom rather than actually addressing the the thing that's that that is the problem and treating it in the right way so you can reliably guarantee that they will misdiagnose the source of the problem and misprescribe the solution to the problem because they are I, almost like willfully and intentionally resistant to understanding what's really going on in the world so with learning and education um, we have a situation, I think, where teachers have not been trained properly in order to be able to teach children to read in school. Right. And we're not addressing that failure. 
And there's a lot of harm that's going to have to be owned when people address that failure, right? That we have, Emily Hanford came out with a podcast. She's a journalist. It's called Sold a Story. If you haven't heard it, I suggest to our listeners, go and listen to it. And it talks about how in America we have truly failed our children to teach them how to read. And everyone bought into a lie about reading and balanced literacy and this guessing game that we have had children doing rather than learning how to read. And so all of this stuff, the CRT, the SEL, the DEI, always has felt like an excuse for educational failure. I've often thought of education as like a cake that's crumbling. And instead of really taking all the frosting off and looking at the cake inside, they just keep putting more frosting and stuff on top of it, right? And not wanting to address the real issues. So there are those that will argue about education that originally when it was first created, that it was, it missed the mark to begin with, that it was meant to create workers instead of truly educating children. Um, But then something happened. There was a shift in education. And you talk about Ferreri, um, this Brazilian gentleman who wrote a book called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. That is, you said it's the top three cited work in uh, American teachers' colleges, in in colleges of education in America? In the humanities and social sciences overall, it's number three. Okay. And so this is an extraordinarily influential work. It holds pride of place in every college of education, every school of of education in, in North America at least and probably beyond. So, yeah, Paulo Freire was allegedly teaching peasants how to read, and he has all these like kind of very not real sounding miracle story stories where he allegedly taught peasants to read in a week or where, you know, in 40 days he took them from not being able to read at all to being, you know, completely literate. But what he he thought was is the reason, and this is going to sound familiar uh, to parents because of the word engagement. What he thought was, well, they're trying to teach these peasants to read with with kind of you know, actual reading materials, which isn't very engaging. It's boring to learn kind of rote sentences like, you know, it, it, it rhymes in Portuguese or whatever, but it's Ava saw a grape is a very common like introductory. It would be like our C. Dick and Jane, you know, in America, Ava saw a grape because it's, I don't know how to say saw anymore, but grape is uva. So Ava, uva, you get the joke. Um, so these cute kind of little things. And he says, well, that's disconnected and meaningless. We're going to teach these people to read by teaching them to read the words that matter to them. So what we're going to do is talk to them. We're going to interview them. We're going to dialogue with them at first without trying to teach them to read to find out what kind of words really mean something to them in their lives. And so he's looking for things that have emotional reactions attached to them, political relevance in particular, because he said the way to get engagement is through political relevance. We call that, of course, cultural relevance now, uh, which is the same thing. Uh, but the idea is that you would look for words like slum, suffering, dying, death, starvation, hunger, stealing, uh, even uh, not all negative words. You might have rich, like other people are rich and you're not. Abundance, and right. Abundance, yeah. yeah, that's right. Frustration. Uh, it's kind of astonishing the words that he would pick. He had a bunch of rules for which words he would pick uh, that have a lot to do with Portuguese and not a lot to do with, with anything in concept. But the, the concept that did matter was that it has to be emotionally and politically relevant to the so-called actualities of their lives. And then he would use those words to give a Marxist political lesson. What are the real causes behind these words? Why are some people rich and some people poor? Why are some people able to afford food and other people not? Why do some people live in a slum and other people get to live in a mansion? These are the kinds of lessons that he wanted to have. And then he would try to peel back the so-called structural or systemic causes. And allegedly, this made the people so interested in wanting to read or we could extend to do math or whatever else that they would then suddenly, you know, 
very spontaneously pick up with those words and use it to learn to read other words and very rapidly construct you know, sentences and learn how to read uh, that way, which is just kind of made up. It's very unlikely to be a successful approach. Uh, this is what's been at the bottom of what's going on in the schools, whether social emotional learning or whatever else, the DEI. And you're right, it is a way to paper over their failures. They want to do a political lesson. And what they do is they create an excuse. They say, well, the kids aren't reading so well. It's probably because they're emotionally disturbed or they have trauma or something. So now what we're going to do is treat the trauma or deal with the emotional or the social circumstances first. And then when we fix that, it's called whole child education. Uh, right. When we fix the whole child, then we can get into actually teaching them to read. But the problem is, is if when they've actually implemented Ferrari's method to do things like this, to address the political situation, the economic situation, the social situation that they're in, and use these kind of culturally relevant or very sensitive radicalizing topics, nobody wants to learn to read. They do the political radicalization and everybody just becomes wants to be an activist. They don't want to learn to read. They don't want to learn to do math. They want to go change society right now. So what you end up with is exactly what we see, a bunch of ignorant activists coming out of schools. So you open up this new book that just uh, just came out on December 6th, The Marxification of Education. I recommend anyone that's listening to this podcast, go out and get this book, read this book. You, there it is right there. A very important book that has been written where James documents what has happened in, 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 in the American public education system and why it has happened. And at the beginning, you open up and you talk about Tiara Mack. <laughs> uh, I do. The senator from Rhode Island who... Uh, had children uh, go out onto the Capitol steps covered in blood after the shooting in Uvalde to protest um, about uh, uh, gun safety. And you point out that uh, I think it's fourth grade, uh, only 14% of the children are reading on grade level and 6% are enumerate, are, are doing math on grade level in Rhode Island. But the concern isn't that the children cannot read or do math. It, the focus was put on them being political activists. And I think that was like the most beautiful and terrific ex, you know, example of where we are in America today with our kids. Yeah, I mean, when you see things like this, it, it immediately raises the question. You have to ask the question, why do you have kids who are unable to read 14% at grade level and kids who are unable to do math 6%, 6%. that's a painful number <laughs> at grade level but who know that the second there's a school shooting off in Texas that half a country away they have to go show up and do some performative political stunt well it's because they go to Paulo Freire schools and so the right. book documents in the beginning the first couple of chapters first of all that relevance how this connects to what we actually see answers that question um, but secondly, how did this, how did this come to be? How did Paulo Freire, this kind of fringe character who was propped up by a leftist Brazilian government and then literally chased out of the country when right-wingers took over in 1964, uh, how did he become so prominent in America, uh, when his books are unabashedly religious in what they think education should be about. Um, and then it explains in tremendous detail for the rest of the book what his method is and how it enables what I call the theft of education, uh, how it enables taking a math lesson and transforming it into a political lesson that poses as a math lesson. How do you remove the real content and replace it with political content? Well, aside from how that's done, let's just talk about what would happen if that was done. Imagine that you took the math lesson say word problems, connecting, you know, statistics to whatever. 
and you took all the mathematical content out of it, except the outermost surface, and then you filled it in with what Freire calls raising political literacy. What would you end up with after a few years of schooling like that? Well, you'd end up with kids who are about 6% competent in doing math, but know it's time to go do a performative political action the second something happens that moves the ball for certain political causes, but certainly not others. Uh, ones that they've been radicalized to believe are existential crises in their lives, which is another word that Freire uses all the time. What would you see if their reading lessons have been hollowed out? And it looks like on the outside a reading lesson. So when the parents check the curriculum, they say, well, the curriculum, if they're reading these books, I understand. They look at the paper, but that gets hollowed out. And the way it actually gets taught turns out to be using this in Freire's language as a mediator to political knowledge. What would you end up with? 14% of kids who can read it, read at grade level, but know it's time to show up to a political protest on school hours, the second something politically actionable for certain types of causes, namely left-wing causes, appears in the national media. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a direct straight line from Paulo Ferreri's theft of education to what we actually see with our children. It's not even, it's not like there's these extra steps where you have to do any intellectual gymnastics. It's, it's literally direct. So let's talk about Williamson County, Tennessee. Okay. Um, one of our very first chapters in Moms for Liberty uh, started Williamson County, Tennessee. Uh, a woman named Robin Steenman, uh, a mom, uh, a former uh, B-1 bomber pilot in the Air Force. Uh, she's a pretty badass lady. She is badass. And, uh, yeah, she is. And not afraid, uh, not afraid to take up a fight. So Robin Steeman and her chapter get very concerned when they see the second grade curriculum uh, called Wit and Wisdom by Great Minds. Um, they start looking at uh, some of the curriculum. They start hearing what the kids are saying about it. On the surface, you're looking at these books and you're saying, well, it's Ruby Bridges Goes to School. It's a great book. I mean, Ruby wrote the book and it's a wonderful story about a little girl who goes through tremendous adversity but changed the future of our country, right? Changed our history and, and brought us to a place where we needed to be, where we had integrated schools. And her parents were very brave. They, they had an enormous amount of pressure um, to, not, uh, to not allow Ruby to go to the white school, and yet they stood firm. And so there are so many wonderful lessons to be taught from that book. And from the outside and the criticism that Moms for Liberty has gotten, they say, oh, you don't want Ruby Bridges goes to school to be taught, you racist bigots? you white supremacists, and that was never the case. And so Robin and her chapter, 30 people, did a deep dive, took over a 1,000 hours, and looked at that curriculum and broke it down and looked at the teacher's manual because that was what you needed to look at. The way that the teachers were instructed to teach the children during this nine-week civil rights module, and then they went K through five, and they looked at all the curriculum. This idea of the generative themes anti-American, anti-parent, anti-God, anti-religion, um, suicidality, uh, cannibalism, um, all of these different themes introduced to these children. We're talking about six and seven-year-olds. Tina, in an interview, had the audacity to suggest that perhaps we shouldn't be teaching six-year-olds the N-word because in one of these books, the N-word is, is in graffiti in a background picture, but guess what the teacher's manual tells you to do? tells you to focus in on that word and to discuss it in detail. And the words that were used, and I know you wrote an affidavit for a lawsuit for Parents' Choice Tennessee, had these children learning about, I mean, injustice was a vocabulary word in second grade. So where we started this conversation 
In Williamson County, Tennessee, where we have been ridiculed time and time again for our concern about the generative themes that we saw being brought up in this curriculum, is really, it, it was a nuanced conversation at the time, but it really strikes at the heart of where we are, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, so you kind of see two things happening there. Uh, one is that you have these unobjectionable modules. Yeah, we want kids to learn about civil rights, but there's almost an exaggerated focus within the schooling not even almost. There is an exaggerated uh, focus within the schooling environment on social politics. Uh, yes, of course, we want kids to learn about civil rights. And then it's there are other things as well. But the other things become much less important because these people only care about social politics. Uh, but secondly, and much more importantly, because we should be having curriculum about the civil rights movement, we should be having curriculum about all these things, is this generative themes approach. This generative themes approach is very difficult which is, I, if I had to, if you had to say, James, why did you write the Marxification of Education in one sentence? It was to expose the generative themes approach for what it is, because this is how they're tricking parents. The idea is, okay, so we have this Ruby Bridges goes to school. This is unobjectionable curriculum to any person who just looks at it on the surface. And then when, like you said, when you look at the teacher's manual and how it's supposed to be taught, and if you got into the teacher's trainings, which aren't even written down in terms of how they're supposed to be taught, what the teachers are being taught to do, they're supposed to highlight those generative themes that we talked about a minute ago, those politically actionable or reactionable, activating really, terms. And they're supposed to focus on those, whether it's through vocabulary lessons, like in you know putting injustice or suffering or s slavery or whatever as the vocabulary words. But the goal is to rate, that's why they're called generative, is to generate a political conversation in the classroom, which might not even be on the teacher's manual to do it, right? It could just say discuss whatever circumstances around Ruby Bridges going to school and the teacher has been trained through social emotional learning training or whatever it happens to be. Wit and Wisdom, by the way, is one brand name out of about 100 or maybe 200 for social emotional learning programs being brought in. Why do they need so many brand names? Because they don't want people to know that the same thing's happening all over the country. But uh, the, the teacher will be instructed to focus in on some particular generative themes that actually are the things that are causing reactions in the students and to prime the students to, to have discussions about systemic racism or their own complicity in racism. Have you ever been racist? Can you imagine what it feels like? Then you bring it back to the classroom. Could you imagine what it felt like to be Ruby Bridges? Can you imagine what it feels like to be Billy, who's black, having to look at this and see all the white faces in this classroom as we go through this lesson. Can you imagine how hard that is for Billy? And now you've created a massive emotional dynamic with caring little six and seven year olds or whatever the grade level is to where you're going to use their emotions to manipulate them. You're going to get their, you're going to put a hook into their heart to lead them away from their head, as you might put it. And you know this by what we we saw the parents and the students from the classroom. This is how they found out about it. They had a student who came home who was a biracial student who said, Mommy, I don't want anyone to know that daddy is white. And, and her answer was, why? And he said, because white people are bad. And, um, I, you know, if, if I don't want anybody to know that daddy is white. Now, I went on Dr. Phil with you uh, to talk about CRT and they said to me, what's one question you could ask Dr. Phil? If you get one question, what do you want to ask him? And I said, I'd like to ask Dr. Phil what it does to a child psychologically for them to be told that half of them is good and half of them is bad. 
Yeah, I mean, that's- Which is what's happening for our biracial children when you talk about oppressor versus oppressed in the classroom. That's exactly right. And and what happens with the, the, the rest of the kids as well, because you're constantly getting them to think in this, well, I mean, it has a name, it's called Marxist conflict theory. You're constantly getting them to think into this 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 mode, this social conflict, that everything is this kind of huge battle between justice and injustice, and everybody has to be aligned on one side or the other of it. And it's very clear which is the good side and which is the bad side. And so the goal becomes to take up learning time that might be dedicated to actually learning the history of why Ruby Bridges Goes to School is a book in the first place, and it turns into instead navigating the so-called social and emotional landscape that surrounds that topic so that you can start to push into this oppressor versus oppressed narrative, this conflict theory narrative, so that people will want to align with what they define as being uh, justice and to denounce, to again use Ferrari's words for how you're supposed to approach the world, everything that you can associate with injustice. Uh, this is a very interesting question. It's a very big experiment to be performing on hundreds of maybe a hundred million American kids all at once to find out what happens when you take their entire learning environment and turn it into a gigantic programming uh, environment that that exposes them to this way of thinking. Uh, it's a very black and white thinking. It's very moralistic right and wrong thinking. It, it makes them complicit for things they have no control over, like their skin color, um, like any number of things about how they happen to be born, male, female. They tell them they're born in the wrong body if we get into the queer theory, sex side of things. What does that do psychologically to kids? And how is it that this is supposed to be, you know, the social emotional environment that's supposed to enhance learning that, that they say is necessary to have 21st century skills are 21st century skills that they talk about all the time. These competencies defined in terms of like kind of constantly obsessing about identity and being mad about everybody all the time. Is that what they mean by this? Is that constantly so divided? I mean, and that's what's happening. The children are being constantly divided. And we see that as parents as just ways to control us, right? Ways to control society in America, pit people against each other, and then use that anger and aggression to control them and, and to push them ever towards whatever it is, the goal that you want it to be. Um, and I want to talk about- uh, Well, for Ferrari, the, before that, yeah. Ferrari says what the goal is perpetual cultural revolution. It's so that right. there is never a stopping point. He says if the revolution stops, it becomes a status quo, which is necessarily right wing and therefore is a problem. And so it is to constantly make this war amongst each other and to make it permanent. And so obviously there are going to be people sitting outside of that that want to control us and our children. But imagine the landscape for the person in it, which is your child. It perpetual Constant cultural conflict. revolution. That it seems like all of the adults in our country and probably the world have forgotten that children are not just small adults. They are actually children. And parents who raise children very directly know that and understand that. They believe in the tooth fairy. I keep saying, like, you know, we're talking about second grade. They're six years old. They believe a little fairy flies into their room at night and takes their tooth and leaves some money for them. And they think that happens for all the kids together. So let's think about the mind of a child. Um, I just, you don't even know this, so I'm going to surprise you with it. In Otter Tail, Minnesota, um, some political polling going on in the school, James. Some of the questions that the eighth grade students in Otter Tail, Minnesota, Minnesota were asked, should the government increase spending on public transportation? 
Should illegal immigrants have access to government-subsidized health care? Should the U.S. build a wall along the southern border? Should police departments be allowed to use military-grade equipment? Uh, should the U.S. assassinate suspected terrorists in foreign countries? What political party do you most identify with? Uh, should teachers be allowed to carry guns at school? Um, should producers be required to label genetically engineered foods? Should a photo ID be required to vote? This is eighth grade, ladies and gentlemen, that they are polling the children. James, what would be the purpose of polling eighth graders around these issues? Well, there are two. One is to gather the data so that they can attach that to the, the, the child's identity and trying to place them kind of sociopolitically and determine what they will with that, whether that's some t at some point down the track, some kind of social credit score, which is a possibility. It's not a reality as far as I know currently. Of course, it was a reality in China for three years before anybody knew it was a reality in China. So one isn't, can't be quite sure. Uh, but um, to have that data to, to do all kinds of things, it could just be for marketing purposes. It could be for political propaganda purposes through the devices to make sure they see the kinds of ads that tailor in certain ways as they grow up or whatever. But the, the, on the other side is because it's an ocean of generative themes. Every single political question that they raise becomes a generative theme. So now there's excuses to talk about immigration. There's talk, or excuses to talk about how Democrats good, Republicans bad, because that's the equity framing. Um, somehow, you know, the entire moral arc of history has aligned with the party that has put Joe Biden in office somehow, uh, which is, and then of course, there are other scandals like this character, uh, this Sam Brinton character that's going real well. Found out today he's uh, connected to education, as a mm -hmm. matter of fact, and whether or not parents should be allowed to know about if their kids are involved in gender transition or sexuality questions or even suicidal thoughts. He he was one of four people in a huge uh, push from the federal government to help decide that this guy that just got arrested for stealing women's clothes from airports after being, you know, kind of the most visible sign of weirdness in the moral arc of history, bending toward the Democratic Party's absolute and total power. So the goal is to create opportunities to have those conversations so that they can be framed using the social emotional learning techniques or whatever other techniques so that it can be treated through the lenses that the, um, Facilitators, because that's how Ferrari describes teachers, they are facilitators of political knowledge, can frame it in terms of. So those would be like equity, inclusion, and sustainability. Those are overwhelmingly the three big ones that they are kind of completely wedded to. We have a, what is it, you know, what are the, why are there sustainable development goals for a more sustainable and inclusive future? So those two words, they can't get away from that. And then equity, equity, equity. And so the goal is to raise those topics so they can cause, especially they can cause a kid to ask, why are we talking about immigration? Well, I know somebody who's an immigrant or something like this. And then you have a kind of carte blanche by the kind of, you know, unwritten rules of the school. Well, a child asked, I felt like I had to step in and answer. If they can generate the question, then they can generate the context or the circumstances in which they get to frame the answer for that question and devote class time to it. So one of the big purposes, and that's the Freire and generative themes, dialogical model approach, surveying is just kind of an updated form of interviewing. So it's just how you get that information from the kids. And then you're going to find out which things they write down, which things are relevant to them, which things are scary to them. And then you're going to have these kinds of places where you know if you have these conversations, you're going to be able to do this and that and the other with the kids in the classroom. And so it, it nothing good is the purpose of – I remember in college – 
<laughs> not being quite clear on what the two political parties were. It was never a topic in my education. Never, I mean, I was in STEM, like we don't care about anything except math and stuff. But never, nevertheless, I, I, I remember finding out later after I left college that my friends back in college were conservatives and being shocked. Like what? They had political thoughts. Like we just watched TV and like hung out and did stuff, you know, and went and volunteered for, for you know, the different clubs and organizations and, and did campus stuff. So I started this interview talking about social emotional learning. I saw uh, a school district that hadn't had a lot of it be inundated with options and watched as those options were deployed and started to becoming increasingly concerned about the fact that um, it was really making the child um, doubt themselves. It, it seemed like when I would watch social emotional learning, and, and, and it used to be, and, and I know there are many that'll say it never started out good. I, I understand that now a little bit. Um, but it used to have at least a place in the day where it would be in morning circle time or something, and there would be discussions regarding you know, emotional well-being and um, issues about inclusion and, and being kind or, or, you know, behavioral management. And then um, it, it has, has quickly, to be honest, gone into every single aspect of this child's school day. Um, so as you say, all of these different themes can be introduced into math. Um, so social-emotional learning, um, uh, big moneymaker, I think the biggest concern that we truly have, it's how all of this critical theory, queer theory is being, is getting into the kids' school day because we're putting a real emphasis on um, feelings. And we're hearing from James that teachers that uh, are telling us that they're having more behavioral problems on the days where they really are focused, where they are forced to focus on social emotional learning. Um, and sometimes like there's one day of a week in a school where they'll focus more on it. Um, that's when they're seeing the most behavioral issues. So diving kids back into feelings all the time. And I know you speak a little bit about the fact that there's an effort to destabilize the child. I think of it like this. When you are raising your kids, you tell them if you get a funny feeling in your tummy, if something doesn't feel right, or if you know you have that little, that little conscience, that little a Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder, mom and dad saying, mm, I don't know if mom's going to like this. Maybe doing this isn't a great idea. This might not be the smartest thing to do. Social emotional learning is really getting the child to lean into that feeling of discomfort. I mean, explicitly, they call it the pedagogy of discomfort. They say that it's a useful tool for overcoming cognitive dissonance. It's a useful tool for managing those feelings when they, what, what does that mean? Managing them so that you can continue having the facilitated conversation into politics. Uh, when they arise, it's it's quite explicitly designed to, they call it building resilience. But of course, the opposite of resilience is fragility. And we know what they've done with the word fragility because we all just went through the whole white fragility scam for the past three years. So we have a pretty clear sense of what this is about. But what you're seeing is is kind of a constant thing with the activism we see from leftists. First of all, of course, there's a double stuffed Oreo of failure that they have that they don't know what they're, 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 they're diagnosing and they don't know the prescription for it. But what you see is with any operational term, so we could have diversity, it could be inclusion, but in this case, social-emotional learning, what happens is over time, the definition gets narrower and narrower and narrower. It kind of comes down to a point. You can think of it like a funnel. At the bottom of the funnel is everybody doing what they want. 
Okay, so at first, social-emotional learning might mean nine or ten different things. Some of them are rooted in Christianity. Some of them are rooted in, you know, let's deal with the troubled kids. Let's. Some of them are just like, let's have a talk circle about good behavior at the beginning of the day. And by the end of the thing, what you have is called transformative social-emotional learning, which is very explicitly critical consciousness-raising, Marxist. Linda Darling-Hammond describes it in, in in her own writing as being based in Ferrari's, what's the transformative and transform, transformative social emotional learning, in Ferrari's idea of Marxist transformation of the individual and his Marxist humanization. And so you have this narrowing of meaning and now it's shifting into, a lot of people don't know this yet, it's right around the corner. Let me tell you, the DOE is already on it. Transformative social emotional learning is already just a good first step. Culturally affirming social emotional learning is coming right around the corner, and it's way—it's so radical. I don't even know how to start assembling things to talk about it. It's—it's it's explicit in their own documentation that they sent to the Department of Education that rather than having suggestions or competency areas or whatever like Castle does for um, transformative social emotional learning, now you have demands. And the demands they tell you in bold print in large letters at the top of the page are explicitly drawn from the Black Panther Party to give you a flavor of how totally radical we're talking about with this culturally affirming SEL. So what happens is with these actionable terms, the meanings get narrower and narrower like a funnel until at the bottom of the funnel, everybody's doing what they want. Meanwhile, the scope of application expands. It goes from kind of a targeted thing where, oh, this kid's having problems. Let's take him aside. Let's give him some special counseling. Like we used to have speech therapy for, I always laugh because my brother got stuck in it because he couldn't say the one word that gets you out. He didn't actually have much of a speech problem. He just couldn't say the one word that was like the way out. So there's your go <laughs> there's government schools for you. Uh, he couldn't say squirrel in third grade. So he was trapped <laughs> no. in speech therapy for like, <laughs> like a year. But we used to do things like speech therapy. You could also have that with behavioral issues. You could take those kids aside and try to have, you know, licensed psychologists talk to them and figure things out. You could actually have moments where there is that circle or whatever and try to integrate them and have them fit into the classroom or whatever, right? But that's a targeted and individual approach where you're actually dealing with kids who are actually at risk for real reasons to be at risk. And what we have now is systemic SEL, where it's not just that it's- Everybody. Right. It's not just everybody. everybody whole group, right. But literally, it's to be woven into the subject matter. Math is to be taught through an SEL lens. History is to be taught through an SEL lens. Yada, yada, yada. Why do you see the kids having worse behavior problems? Why do you see? Because this isn't structured. It's not actually within the set of kids have behavior problems when they don't have age appropriate and situationally appropriate boundaries around them in which they can thrive and grow. This is well-known, well-established developmental psychology, which, of course, if we look into the education literature from the woke, we see they're trying to queer. They want to queer early childhood developmental psychology to make room for all of their nasty stuff they want to do. So <laughs> and you, here, of course and, you and see now this. We go full, and now we go full circle, drag queen story hour, provocative in its very nature, right? I, I posted on Twitter the other day. No one had an issue with drag queens when drag queens were doing shows in bars or in other places. Nobody cared. Have fun. Dress up. Do what you want to do. You know, honestly, maybe some people didn't like it, but I think in general, people just, you know, saw it for what it was. And it was, you know, it was performance. It's its right? own art form. And it's, it's an its art own, form that should be protected even in its own space. Yeah, I mean, I, I, as a woman, I'll just be honest with you. The whole woman face thing is getting annoying. I'm it's not going to lie. Old. 
It is. And I saw a drag queen who like was, I, I watched a video of a drag queen walking through a bar. There was a child there, unfortunately. And the drag queen was, um, had these giant, large prosthetic breasts and was um, hitting them and then saw the child and covered themselves up knowing that it was inappropriate, right? And then turned right back around and again, smacked the breasts and no woman treats their body like that and no man should ever treat a woman's body like that. And so to me, it's just become, it's just a farce. Well, become, of, and of, that's the word because it starts out like as an opportunity, woman face or whatever. It starts out as an opportunity to poke at the pretensions around, say, stereotypes that people hold, it's a way to puncture that kind of pomposity that makes for bigotry. Same thing with the comedy that was done in the 70s and 80s and, and in the 90s around race. And then now it's just become fetish crap out in public shoved in kids' faces. There's no art left. There's The, the art has been destroyed. It's been turned into a, to a, a simulacrum of art. Um, anything that drag had has been ruined by these weirdos who are trying to use it for political activism and whatever else. It's even its subversive potential is gone, which is, it's, it's as somebody who can appreciate a thing for just what it is, whether I, I want to be a part of it or not, it's, it's tragic in a way and sad, but that ability to puncture, I mean, woman face or drag as it were, was a great way to kind of make fun of or tease people for being too into gender stereotypes or whatever else and to puncture that that like i said that pomposity that, that from which bigotry flows and now it's become exactly the opposite it's just the it's just yeah. being as stereotypical it's like being stereotypically like toxically masculine toward a feminine perspective that you've stuck on yourself just to be provocative and nasty and it has no place in our schools. And so no, it's intentionally provocative. And and so just talk to us for a minute because, you know, there are lots of, of you know, I've heard this term stochastic terrorism. Oh, God. Stochastic, yeah. I pronounced that correctly. Well, yeah. I know, but I want to, but I, but I want to be honest about some of these things because, you know, I, I think it's important to, for us to recognize that, you know, we're, we're going to have to watch ourselves because they are intentionally provoking Americans. They're intentionally provoking American parents. That's correct. And, and, and drag queens in schools is provocative. I saw some term that Glad came out with the other day, drag phobia. Yep. Um, this idea that people are scared. No one's scared of drag queens. We just don't want them in our child's elementary public school library. 100%. Right? And, and that's a really normal thing for a parent to not want to sexualize their child, but they put us in this place where it makes us seem like we're some type of, you know, bigots that to not want that happening, to not want our children sexualized. So just some advice for parents when they're dealing with these issues that are in, intentionally there to provoke them and to make them upset. Yeah. So let me just point out real quick, you say it's provocative and I do want to spend most of my time talking about the provo the provocation and what it means. But I want to point out that when you say provocative here, remember they wrote an academic paper. I read it as a podcast. It's called uh, Groomer Schools 4, uh, which is, there are four of them. There are three others. You can listen to those too. But Groomer Schools 4 focuses on an academic paper called Drag Pedagogy, which explains why, the, from the perspective of one of the creators of Drag Queen Story Hour, uh, they explain why they're doing it and what word do they use? Not so much provocative. They do. I think I could check and see if they actually use that word generative. They say that mm. the presence and performance of the drag queen is a generative opportunity for queer pedagogy in order to help kids learn to, and I quote, live queerly. And 
alternate modes of kinship, defiance, strategic rule breaking. These are the things that it's generative to teach them. How about that? So when you say it's provocative in schools for the children, it is a generative theme for you as the parent. It is a deliberate what what you would call in um, unconventional warfare or political warfare. It's what you would call a mid-level violence provocation. It's not violent enough to, it's the, it's the, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching yeah, you. Right, right, it's, right. It's not, vi it's, it's, a, it's a clear provocation, but it's not violent enough to warrant much of a response. And if you're really good at getting into that space, what you can do is cause the other person to just back off and let you do your drag queens in front of the kids where it's a generative opportunity for them. Or for you to overreact, at which point they're going to catch you on film overreacting and they're going to make a huge fuss of it and they're going to make you look really bad. And the next thing you know, Moms for Liberty for bringing up the issue is a stochastic terrorist or domestic terrorist organization. Libs, Libs of TikTok, Matt Walsh, myself are stochastic terrorists for pointing it out, saying, OK, groomer on Twitter and so on. And we are causing, in their words, quote, rising anti-LGBT hate or stochastic terrorism, which is the idea that if you use kind of inflammatory rhetoric, sooner or later, you'll shake up some crazy person enough where they'll go do something violent. You know, their their claim is that you know, and you want something violent to happen just through some poor person out there who's got just a couple too, too many screws loose. And you know, if you say it enough times, somebody will go do your dirty work for you. That's the concept behind stochastic terrorism. Of course, we just saw Nancy Mace uh, catch the the trans activist out as one of the worst, you know, Iron Law Book projection ever misses. This character, um, Weird Al, as I refer to him, constantly does this kind of provocation on Twitter. And then suddenly, you know, it's bad when everybody else does it, but there's special circumstances for him. But the idea... But what a nasty, what a nasty thing to do to parents who are trying just to raise right. healthy children to... That's right play games with them and to put them in a position where even safeguarding their children's heart and mind is somehow hurting someone else. It's sadistic. And so the goal is to take down, of course, whichever parents are associated with this, but then whatever organizations are connected to it uh, by guilt through by association, claims of stochastic terrorism and so on, hate speech, blah, blah, blah. And so the goal will be, of course, to punish very, if, if some parent finally cracks and loses it and does some stupid or violent or even just angry thing, what will happen is they're going to make the, I'm calling it the meme, I'm calling it drag Floyd on the internet. They're trying to, George Floyd blew up everything in 2020. They're trying to provoke somebody in our culture to do something violent in an unambiguous, awful way to a drag queen or a queer person or something that's doing a provocation or even tangential to a provocation. They're trolling the media already looking for examples of when this has happened and they're going to try to blow it up into the same kind of thing that we saw with George Floyd in summer 2020 because then what they can do is delegitimize groups like Moms for Liberty, delegitimize voices like, you know, myself or Libs of TikTok or whoever that they accuse of being involved in this. But then they're going to use that to lobby for the government to step in and say that kind of speech has dangerous consequences. So we have to limit that kind of speech. If guns are used, well, we have to limit guns. And then right now they've shifted gears as much as they hate Moms for Liberty. It turns out that they have a all consuming folk, you know, focal point of hate in Elon Musk right now because he took their Twitter toy away from them. And uh, if you read every article right now, it's 
Elon Musk let these horrible people back on rising anti-LGBTQ hate. And so they're going to try to delegitimize the ability to have free speech. So what you'll see is platforms like YouTube and whatever social media that they can get their hands in are going to clamp down even tighter if something happens. It's all going to be a gigantic pretext to shut everything down that they want shut down, uh, whether that's free speech, whether that's social media like Twitter, now that Elon Musk controls it, that how, if they can't reclaim through government regulation or whatever else, Twitter, they will try to just destroy it so that nobody can have it. I, I did a podcast about that called The Sinking of the USS Twitter, actually. And um, groups like Moms for Liberty are, are in the crosshairs. They hate Moms for Liberty because Moms for Liberty is effective and good in trying to protect parents. And so what they're going to do is they're going to say, well, Moms for Liberty has been encouraging this. You know, Tiffany and Tina have over 100,000 angry moms who could be the next person to show up and do a terrorist event at another thing or whatever. We're not, this, that's not going to happen. I'll tell you right now, we're joyful warriors. We know our kids are watching, so you can try to give us a hard time, but we are standing strong for our children and we are defending them, but we are doing so with a kind and gentle heart. That's uh, not to get religious on you, but that's why Jesus said that the meek shall inherit the earth. That's what he meant. It's people who are going to do the right thing and not go crazy. That's literally what it means. It means people who are going to be responsible and take responsibility where it has to be done in a responsible way. The kind of person who knows their child is watching and wants to set an example for them. Um, that's what it's going to take to stop these things. But parents do need to know, and, and people all around the country need to know, that the desire for a so-called drag Floyd event is very high. They're provoking it with Drag Queen Story Hour and these Drag Queen events for children, including at the White House, apparently. And they will eventually get what, what we would call, in kind of an operational sense, a precipitating event. They will get something, some tragedy will happen by one means or another, and then they're going to throw it into the media, make a giant yeah, narrative about it. it. And what people need to be ready for is to not let that narrative stick. People need to understand that they're, they are already, I mean, in, again, in warfare, they would, in unconventional warfare language, they call this operational preparation of the environment. They're writing the articles. GLAD is putting the thing out. Um, the, what is it, countering digital hate is putting out lists and statistics to make it look all scientifically studied. Media Matters is all over it, like on a daily basis. It's getting laundered into more and more and more media. You're hearing Joy Reid talking about it, showing pictures of, say, my face on television say, trying to associate Did she with, show your face? Yes. Uh, oh, wow. That's trying, the only show I won't go on. Hey, Joy Reid, if you start being honest and want to have real conversations, ask me to come on your show. But you keep asking, you keep lying on TV. I'm not coming on. Yeah. yeah well, she she more or less admitted on Twitter the other day that she's a Marxist, so that don't expect yeah. much honesty there. Um, right. So anyway, they're, they're, they're preparing the environment. This used to be called, by the way, before we had this kind of unconventional fifth generation, whatever the words are, warfare, used to be called operational preparation of the battlefield. Mm -hmm. But now the battlefield is like everywhere all the time, especially through narratives. And so that's why you're like, we laugh when Joy Reid puts it on TV. We laugh when, when the countering digital hate or GLAAD or Media Matters or Human Rights Campaign or whatever make these lists. And we say, you know, do your worst. But those have a function. And those functions are to launder the idea into the public and to create a paper trail they'll point back to. You said, we, three months ago, we were warning about this. Now it's happened. Action must take place. And that is what this is how they work. This is how the magic spell works. They project out into the future, knowing that they're going to be able to play, you know, cast a dragnet at the end. Uh, and all they have to do is wait for something to happen, which 
as a former mathematician who does understand stochastic processes for real, can tell you that with virtual certainty, they eventually come up. They shouldn't. We should hope they never do. But if something can go wrong, eventually it will. It turns out isn't just Murphy's Law. It's what's called, the, it's silly to say, but it's called the infinite monkey theorem. But uh, it's it's not the law of large numbers, just mathematician rant real quick. That's a different thing. <laughs> That's a totally different podcast and I would not be the one hosting it. So <laughs> we will not dive into math. The, this is, I could talk to you all day. Um, I have listened to your podcast. Again, I recommend that people listen to James, uh, listen to James's podcast and, and really start learning a little bit. And he mentioned that he does the bullets. Um, those are kind of shorter, more condensed, but a little bit more focused. So if you want to come in and you just want to get an overview of an issue and see if it's something that you that you want to learn more about, um, then the bullets, I suggest starting there. Groomer Schools was awesome. The, the one podcast that I think that has really left its mark on me and helped me to understand um, a lot of, of the different global dynamics to some of the issues that we're dealing with is the death, the strange death of the university. And um, I listened to that uh, a couple times, to be honest with you, James, because it's difficult to wrap your head around the idea that you have the United Nations, the Sustainable Development Goals that were created, I think, was it 2015, uh, with a goal of a, a 2030 uh, agenda. Um, and, and number four of the Sustainable Development Goals is quality education. And right now in America, you have Joe Biden talking about America returning to UNESCO. Apparently, we left UNESCO in 2011, or we stopped making payments, excuse me, um, because uh, Barack Obama decided when Palestine joined uh, UNESCO or was invited to join Israel and the United States, stopped making payments at that point, as I understand it. If I'm wrong about something, please tell me. And then um, 2018, uh, President Trump at the time removed us completely uh, from UNESCO. And now we have uh, Joe Biden saying that we should rejoin. Uh, they want us to, to give $500 million in back pay. America was paying about 20% of uh, the UNESCO budget. Um, and so uh, $500 million in back pay so that we can uh, become a part of UNESCO. And here's the thing, whether or not we're a part of UNESCO, these sustainable development goals are happening right now in America. They are operational, aren't they? Yeah. And, and like you said, with that podcast, uh, it's really a series of four. I go through a UNESCO publication from earlier this year. Um, I guess I should say 2022 because we're almost out of that, almost out of it. But uh, they where they published a, a long hundred and some odd page document, or maybe it's 100 pages going through how all higher education institutions in the world need to be retooled with the to, so that even to the level of their mission statements being rewritten to achieve the sustainable development goals of Agenda 2030 completely unabashed in what their agenda is. And then I have to do a follow-up to that now because, you know, since I published those four podcasts uh, going through the different chapters of that document, which starts out, by the way, citing Herbert Marcuse, <laughs> literally yeah. the chief neo-Marxist of the 1960s. Uh, but since that's come out, it's, you know, come across, I know you've seen it too, uh, come across our desks that the national, so you're like, oh, UNESCO, that's way over there, right? No, no, no. Right. The National Education Association has adopted the exact same framework, but now not for higher education, but through what we might call P through 20, but definitely K through 12 within that. So preschool through end of graduate schools, P through 20, K through 12 is, of course, what we consider primary and secondary in the middle of that. Um, 
the goal is to transform your kid's education. And if 2030 is a target year, we don't have much time. So this will happen very, very quickly. I've been going around all year saying this time next year, we're going to only be talking about the sustainable development goals. I promise you it's coming. Uh, but now we see that the lessons for like first grade are explicitly, here are the sustainable development goals. Let's learn them. The lessons for kindergarten are what is hunger? Why is there world hunger? How can we fix world hunger? Just in line with those exact same sustainable development goals. So the goal is going to be to retool education. This is a UNESCO initiative. The, the National Education Association, the NEA, has taken it up, the largest teachers union. I was literally just on a podcast the other day talking with somebody who leans left and he was telling me, but that's not evidence that it's going to make it into our schools. And I'm like, what are you right. talking about? <laughs> like, what on earth are you talking about? All of our schools are going to be geared toward achieving the United Nations Agenda 2030 Sustainable Development Goals, along with all of the different transformations in our, you know, travel, you know, whether what are they doing in Oxford in, in line with those separating Oxford into five zones and you can only leave your zone so many times per year. And there's all these zero emission zones where if through, you know, 12 hours a day, if you use any kind of a vehicle that has emissions without a permit, you have to pay an expensive fine. Like they're going full blast into well, they're experimenting with the idea of climate lockdowns, temporary periods when nobody can leave except by foot or on bike. Um, they're going full blast into trying to force these sustainable development goals on us. And they're going to become the the very center of everything, including your kids' education. And what did UNESCO publish in 2019? SEL for SDGs. Social emotional learning is the ideal tool to facilitate achieving the sustainable development goals through children in schools. Because why? Because it manages their cognitive dissonance. It manages their emotional reactions. It teaches them to be resilient in, in the front of their brainwashing. And then, you know, pages and pages and pages of them explaining why social emotional learning should be tooled up for that exact purpose. Just like the World Economic Forum said before that. When I happen to read that UNESCO document or parts of it into a podcast, which is called Should We Trust Social Emotional Learning on the New Discourses, I think I have the most bad words per minute of <laughs> ratio of anything I've ever recorded in my life. I more or less went on a gigantic swearing fest as I tried to read this professionally and was completely unable to because it's so irritating and frustrating that they're just doing this right in our faces. So I was talking to someone who has experience in education and has worked in ed reform, and their opinion about it was similar to what you just said. Like, oh, this isn't going to happen. Like, they can't implement anything with fidelity in public education. So how could they possibly implement this? And my answer back was because it's so easy, because it leans into the very base nature of people. That social-emotional learning really brings everything down to just how you feel about things. And mm -hmm. it was how you got, you know, a nation of people to wear a mask, even though we realized it didn't actually do anything to stop transmission, right, or to mitigate the spread of, of, of an aerosolized virus. But you did it to make people feel better. And, and so, you know, this idea of kind of pushing down your individual feelings for the, the good of the collective and this being done over and over and over in our schools and our children being taught that to, to not think about things or to really rely on their feelings, their own internal knowledge about something, but to think more about how it makes other people feel um, is so dangerous. And so that's why I think that they'll actually, and they are having such great success with implementing social emotional learning for SDGs in our public schools. So any thoughts you have on that? Because I know that there will probably be some people listening that are going to say, oh, you know, I had someone tell me, oh, it's, you're paranoid or, you know, there's a tinfoil hat moment. But James, all of the information is there. They're not being shy 
They're not hiding what they're trying to do. And I know you and I have talked about this because they're in full operational mode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're completely and confident. Completely confident. And, and they have to have it out there in order to make it work, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. you can't do something in secret, so you have to push it out. So it's out there. So we, as Moms for Liberty or other people in, in, the, in the world or in our country that are listening that are like, how do you stop this? How do you stop this? You've said before, you just don't do it. And yeah. so let's talk a little bit about that. What does that look like? Well, as far as a tinfoil hat comment, it's like, you're right. A lot of these people are right that they couldn't possibly coordinate a secret conspiracy like this. One, you know, somebody would leak it, it would get out, but they're not coordinating a secret conspiracy. It's out in the open. You can go read the documents yourself. And so what I keep hearing people say to me is, well, I just can't see that. You know, I can't see them implementing that. I can't see the connection between uh, UNESCO and the NEA and what actually happens in schools. And I've just kind of come to the point where I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of things you can't see. I mean, what do you want me to say? It's, uh, I can tell you can't see things. Uh, and maybe that makes let you feel Let me show safer. you in these documents. And let me show you in these documents that are there for you to read yourself. Yeah, but so the the way that you actually stop this is by not doing it. They've created tons of incentives, lots of money, federal money in particular, to the Department of Education to do it. And it takes being able to say, no, I'm going to walk away from that money. I'm going to make schooling simpler for kids. We're going to get back to basics. We're not going to work on all this complicated stuff. Um, and we're going to we're going to step back from this. Now, you've had some some states take some steps. Uh, your own state of Florida, however, quite um, demoralizingly. I mean, I almost think it was an intentional slap in the face. In the Stop Woke Act itself, Section 4 literally uses exactly castle language to mainline social-emotional learning into Florida schools while allegedly stopping woke. Um, I've had the pleasure of pointing that out to um, a few Florida, Florida legislators since, and they're a bit aghast. How did this happen? And I was like, well, I know who helped you write that bill, which I won't say anything else about at the moment. Um, but what you have to do is become savvy enough to know what not to do and then don't do it. And I've been working with the state of Louisiana right now. They sent me their proposed document the other day and asked me to write a letter uh, for the state, uh, for the state legislature and um, for their what they call Bessie, which is Board of Elementary and Secondary Education or something like this. And so I write this letter, but I go through this document about the proposed changes, which they're shrinking 122 pages of educational stuff down to 22 pages. So, you know, there's a lot of vagueness going on in that. So I read through it, though, and you can see it. It's right there. It's on page 10. Okay, here's where they're going to implement all of it. And they're very careful about the language. So you've got like if you're going to get involved in a school board or in dealing with the schools directly or if you're a Moms for Liberty chapter member, you don't have an excuse anymore. You have to learn some of the words. You have to be able to spot. They're not going to say we're going to implement the Castle's social emotional learning program. They're going to say we're going to tool up education so that it focuses on things like self-awareness, self-management, responsible decision-making, uh, what is what are the other two, um, social awareness, it's something, um, relationship skills. And so they're going to talk about the five competency areas. They're going to name them. That's what the Florida bill does. But they don't say we're going to do social-emotional learning. They might say we're going to focus on social aspects of learning and emotional components to the school experience. They water it down. And if you aren't discerning enough to be able to detect that language, you won't be able to say no because it, that's how they work. It tricks you into thinking that, oh, well, this is this must not be that. 
Well, who doesn't want all children to feel safe and valued in a classroom, right? Of and that course. was well, and that's why I come at this with a very, you know, with a lot of kindness because I was that school board member myself. You know, I was sitting mm-hmm. there after a horrific shooting. I started by opening the podcast about that, you know, reeling, thinking about all of these children in the schools and how are you going to ensure that this doesn't happen again, right? And and people want solutions, but um and and of course people want kids to feel safe and valued in school. We want every child to feel that. Um, but this is a trick. And it's important for us to take a step back and realize that. Um, and parents have been given the gift of being very clearly shown that the government thinks that they know better than we do for our kids. And so at Moms for Liberty, we know that the government uh, needs to know their place. We do not co-parent with the government. And uh, every parent should look at social-emotional learning as a real infringement on your ability to direct the moral and religious upbringing of your child. Um, So, James, um, I appreciate you so much, all of the time and attention that you have given uh, to our chapters and in sharing this information with the rest of the country and the world. Um, We are very thankful for you. Um, Remind people where you can go to uh, follow up on some of this conversation. I know this is a lot. If you're listening, uh, we've covered a lot of, of ground, um, but uh, we'll help you dig in. Uh, so uh, James, where can people, uh, and you have a lot of options, where can people go to, to read and, and learn a little bit more about what you're talking about? Yeah, I was like, there's a lot. Of, I'm about to say a lot of things. Um, so first <laughs> of all, I do want to direct people, especially your moms to the book. I dedicated the book to you guys for a reason. And, and for the moms for liberty out there who don't know, I know you know, but the book book is i can't read it to you the copy i have is an old old uh like you know it says not for resale it's one of the the i forgot what they call it galleys and it, it doesn't have the dedication in it yet when we got it we we're seeing how the spacing works so i can't read it to you it's not in front of me but i dedicated the book to you and to tina and to all the moms fighting for the for the future of our kids and the liberty of our kids and so that's a thank you deliberate um thank you to moms for liberty for putting in i mean if everything I do is worthless, if people aren't putting it into action for real, and nobody's doing a better job of that than Moms for Liberty pretty much anywhere. And so I am very grateful that you all take me seriously. So if you can, if you want to understand what happened in schools, get the book. It's called The Marxification of Education. You can get it. I made it easy. I bought a domain, marxification.com. If you can spell it, you can find it or it's on Amazon. Uh, But you can find me. I'm back on social media at Conceptual James on pretty much all of your favorite platforms, especially, I guess, Twitter. Uh, My company is New Discourses. The website's newdiscourses.com. The podcast is the New Discourses podcast. And it's on social media at New Discourses. So nothing too complicated. If you're really, really excited, we thought New Discourses sounds kind of like nudist courses, like you're going to study nudism. And if you type in nudistcourses.com, it goes to New Discourses as well, just in case you thought I said it wrong. Um, so you can find me there Good too. To know. Yeah, that's <laughs> well, you know, we were just just covering our bases. Um, so at any rate, anyway, conceptual James at New Discourses; those are the main places to find me. Yeah, we find ourselves in such an interesting place in America, and I do think that the next few years are going to really um, be instrumental in uh, the future of uh, in the future of America and moms and dads with children who are growing up have a, a real stake and claim in what happens in the future of America so it makes sense that they are the ones who are on the front lines fighting 
Um, so thank you for giving us tools. I know you've called yourself a weapon before. I think you are. You're our, you're our weapon. We're, we're learning from you, and then we're able to understand more about why these things are happening and, and starting to be able to stop them and recognize it for what it is and stop them. So again, uh, Dr. James Lindsay, thank you so, so much. Everyone, go out and get Mark's Suffocation of Education. James is going to hopefully be at our summit in Philadelphia um, at the end of June, and uh, he'll be able, there you go, he'll be able to answer some questions um, then. So thank you, James. Uh, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. I hope you get to have a little bit of a break, and uh, we will see you back in the new year. Yes, ma'am. Looking forward to that. 